0: that you would care for our soul and that we would be able to say with confidence that no matter what life throws at us, we can rest in your presence and know that you sanctify us, you have saved us through your great sacrifice. Uh, Lord, as we open up your word this morning, I ask that you would give us ears to hear, that our hearts would be open to the word that you have for us, and that we would respond in obedience, God. Lord, we want to be ready for the day of your appearing. We want to be obedient to you. We want to celebrate with the other saints on that great day. So, Lord, we dedicate this time to you. And we ask that you would convict us as necessary, encourage us as it's needed, and draw us into deeper obedience to you. I'd like to thank the band for leading us in a few songs. And you've already had a seat, so I don't have to give you any instructions on that. We are continuing in our series that is called Ambition, the good, the bad, and the holy. And if this is Uh, The first time you've been here in the last couple of weeks, we do have momentum journals that are available for this series, and so please feel free to stand up at this point and grab one at the Welcome Center. You can get you caught up on the last couple of things that we've covered in the last two weeks. Uh, Two weeks ago, Pastor Brad began our series by looking at the topic of selfish ambition, uh, which we read in the scriptures is something to be avoided at all costs. And then last week, Pastor Brad, on Mother's Day, he looked at at the idea of balance, and he challenged this cultural idea that to live a good, honorable, healthy life is to live a life that is well-balanced. And he looked into the scriptures and said, do we not find here that if we are going to give our lives to God, that actually we find that there's areas in our life that are imbalanced because we want to live diligently for the Lord, And so the challenge for us was to say, this is something that we need to up the ante on. We want to be ambitious to actually see some areas of imbalance in our life because we see that as being faithful stewards to God. And today's message is on waiting. Now, the message title is Ambitious Waiting. Now for some of you this morning, you may find that a bit odd that the topic of waiting is something that's addressed at a church because we don't really talk about waiting all that much. We talk about patience, we talk about self-control, we talk about perseverance, we don't really talk too much about waiting. But in my opinion, at least, so much of life is waiting. Like, we wait all the time. I think life is pretty much all about waiting. I mean, try to think of a time in your life that you weren't waiting for something. As a kid, I waited for school to be done. I wanted school to be done, I wanted summer break, and then you're waiting for school to start up again. You finish school and you're waiting for a job. You're waiting for the best friend. You're waiting for your spouse, perhaps. You wait then to have more money so you can buy a home or a vehicle or something that you need. Sooner or later, you find out you're waiting for retirement. And then, you know, you're waiting for the end of your life. And we're just always in this constant mode of waiting. My wife and I went on vacation last week. And as I was preparing for this message, I couldn't help but think about waiting. Even in holiday mode, You're waiting. We wait to pack our bags. We wait to leave. We go to the border. We wait in a lineup. We wait to get to the airport. We wait through security. We wait to get on the plane. We get on the plane and we wait to get to our destination. We get there and we wait for a rental car and we wait to get to our lodging place. We wait to get checked in. We get groceries. We wait, we wait, wait. And finally, then you're like, ah. And one day later, we wait to come home. It's just it's a series of waiting. I really think that life is all about waiting. That's what we're here for. We're always waiting for something. Personality types are defined by waiting, right? Procrastinators, they wait. They're so excited about waiting, they push off waiting. They wait a little bit longer, and then they wait some more, right? I mean, and, and you can learn a lot from someone by how they choose to wait. Uh, we also have avoidance, and that's, that's a type of waiting as well. They push it off. And these are generally seen as, as negative types of waiting, procrastination and avoidance, but it's still waiting nonetheless. Some people wait with patience and elegance. Some people wait with a little bit of noise and some complaining. But all of us wait. It's just a nature of life. It's, it's what we do. But not all waiting is the same. And what I found in my life is, is that when you wait for the inevitable, it may be frustrating, but at least it's manageable. I can wait through a long Costco lineup. I can wait for the traffic light to turn green. I can wait for some of these events. To happen, You can wait for the Canucks game later on. It's going to happen at some point. The more frustrating parts of life, actually the ones that actually fill us with anxiousness and dread and perhaps can be very, very debilitating to us, are, are the waiting periods of the unknown. It's a lot easier to, to wait for a friend to arrive than it is to wait for a, for a call from a prospective boss saying whether or not you've got a job. It's a lot more uh, difficult to wait to hear from a doctor about a chronic illness that that you have. It's much, much more difficult to wait to find out if you're going to have the financial means necessary to pay your bills going on in the future. There's something about waiting for the unknown that makes waiting so much more difficult. And when I'm faced with some of these situations of waiting, I can't help but spend time praying to God and asking Him, when is this going to happen? You know, I've been waiting for for so long, uh, when can I expect that this individual in my life is going to find a job? You know, when is this couple that that has been praying and and seeking every means necessary to have a child, when are they finally going to have a child? How much longer do we have to wait? I mean, how much longer do we have to wait until this person will be healed, they, they've been struggling with this illness for so long. How much longer, Lord? This waiting is becoming so difficult. How much longer does my neighbor have to endure this? How much does our church have to go through this turmoil? How much do we have to wait for this and for that? And, and it's just so difficult. And you just hear yourself sometimes in these moments crying out to God and saying, when? How much longer? And what am I supposed to do while I Wait. And because waiting is not unique to you and to me, it's, it's not unique really when you think about people in the future from now. I mean, technologically speaking, a lot of the things that we have at our disposal are supposed to help us wait less. But we find that it just has given us more efficiency in waiting for more things. And you look in the past, you think about people in biblical times or or even before that, their life was still filled with waiting. They're waiting for food, they're waiting for weather, uh, they're waiting for all sorts of things. And I think it's just part of the human condition is to wait. But because of that, we have a similarity with people both in the past and then into the future because all of us are familiar with waiting. And today's story is in the Gospel of Matthew. And we have this similarity, you and I, too, the disciples, because just like us, they were in a mode of waiting. And just like you and us, they weren't waiting for the inevitable. They were waiting for the unknown. And they asked Jesus a very intriguing question. And Jesus then spends two chapters answering it. It's one of the, At least to me, it's one of the most fascinating parts of the entire Bible. It's in Matthew chapter 24. And Matthew chapter 25. And and we're going to look at this together, but because it's such a vast passage, I'm only going to be able to look at parts of it. So I want to give you a little bit of context. uh, The Gospel of Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to that book right now. This story is also told by Luke and by Mark. There's different variations of this story. Some are longer, some are shorter. We're going to focus on Matthew chapter 24. And I want to set the scene for you because it's really important. These are the, the last couple of chapters in the book of Matthew. And as we celebrated just about a month ago leading into the Easter season, we see this momentum leading up to the end of Jesus' life. And we celebrated Palm Sunday. This is when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem and the crowds met him and they celebrated him. And this, was, this is a huge high. And you have to imagine, if you're a disciple, if you're a follower of Jesus, and, and you're met in this way, you've got to be thinking, all right, yeah, this is great. I'm with this guy. People love him. I'm feeling pretty good about it. And we get to Matthew chapter 23, and this is perhaps one of the most uh, straight-on, vindictive almost passages that we have of Jesus calling out the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders. And chronologically, this is just a day or two after the triumphal entry. And so the disciples, I would think, are thinking to themselves, Yikes, maybe this isn't going to go down quite like we were hoping for. We felt like celebrities a couple of days earlier or were followers of Jesus, and now he's calling out the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. It's known as the seven woes. Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law. And he calls them out for their hypocrisy as he teaches the crowd. Time and time again, he, he lays into them and he teaches truth. And from that moment on, we see the scriptures tell us the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they set out to plot for his life, because they wanted him silenced. And this story picks up from there. This is Matthew chapter 24, and it begins in this way. Jesus leaves the temple where he was teaching. And as he's walking away from the temple, uh, the disciples call attention to the buildings, to the temple here. And they actually make their way uh, further on to an area called the Mount of olives and, and they pick up this conversation but the story begins basically with they're leaving the temple and we don't know exactly what the disciples are saying maybe they're marveling at how beautiful this place is or how massive it is but whatever they end up doing they call jesus attention to it and the very next verse uh, jesus says to them in, "In verse two do you see all these things do you see all these things i tell you the truth not one stone here will be left on another everyone will be thrown down and his disciples must have thought, these stones, this temple, you're talking about this one, right? Okay, you know, that's, that's interesting. You don't hear that every day. Um, you know, if you can imagine yourself some of the great uh, architectural structures that we have in our day, and you have to put yourself back in the disciples' time, uh, this temple was the place in the Middle East. This was... Uh, the most impressive building that was there. People traveled far and wide to get there. And this was their central worship station. So this is the place that they would go. This is the dwelling place of God. And Jesus is saying, not one stone is going to be laid on another one. Essentially, he's saying, this temple is going to be ruined someday. And he's actually forecasting the fall of Jerusalem, which we'll see uh, in just a few verses. And, And the disciples must have thought, what is he talking about? And so sure enough, Uh, Verse 3, we say that that, that they go to a place, the Mount of Olives, and the the disciples, they come to him privately. So there's no crowds, there's no Pharisees. This is Jesus' closest followers, and they follow up on him uh, with this. And they say, tell us, when will this happen? When will this temple be destroyed, in other words? And they follow it up by saying, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So I, I don't know if one disciple interrupted the other to kind of add to this question, but this is a loaded question. And it seems like they've been thinking about it for a bit. They want to follow up on what Jesus has said about this temple being destroyed. And they say, when is this going to happen? They want to know a time period here. And secondly, they say, and, and what is the sign of your coming back and of the end of the age? Now, some of our Bibles, it makes it sound like those are two different things. What's the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? It it sounds like uh, in the original text, this is very much a united event. Uh, The disciples, Jesus, the people of that day, they understood that the coming, uh, the return of the Messiah would very much usher in the the end of the age. So there's really two questions here. It's when is the temple going to come down? And we're looking for a sign. We're looking for some sort of evidence of the return of Christ. And when I, when I look at what the, what the disciples asked Jesus, I can't help but think, this is the same thing that I ask God when I'm going through some sort of time of, of adversity. I want to know how much longer. When is this going to happen? And then secondly, I'm looking for some sort of sign. I want confirmation. I want a text in the scripture that I can memorize and meditate on and say, all right, here's my anchor. Uh, I want good godly counsel from someone else that's, that's going to bring about some sort of sign that my actions are going according to God's plan. And this is what the disciples asked. They said, when's this going to happen and what is the sign of your coming? And the amazing thing is that Jesus answers their questions. We have lots of stories in the scriptures where Jesus is, is a bit evasive, where he chooses not to answer uh, but he actually answers these questions. But the challenge is, of course, he takes a long time to do it. He takes the rest of chapter 24 and it goes all the way into Matthew chapter 5. And it's complicated for a number of reasons. Uh, the first is that he doesn't use direct language, uh, he, he does not just tell them, well, it's going to happen at this time, and, it's, it, and this is going to be the sign of, of it happening. He uses prophetic language, he uses analogy, he refers to Old Testament prophecy. And he uses parables. There's five parables that ends this passage. And so it's a bit tricky. It's a bit tricky for us to, to read through it and say, okay, this is exactly what Jesus meant, and, and here's what the disciples have understood, and this is how we understand it, now we can apply it, and boom, we're done. It takes a little bit more investigating. But the good news is that Jesus leaves us with some very concrete actions to take for how we should wait for these events to happen. But before Jesus addresses Either question, we'll see in in verse 4, he begins with a series of warnings. And he warns against deception. He warns against false prophets. He warns against uh, the power of individuals who are going to be able to perform miraculous signs and Point people into different directions, and basically, he says, Don't believe some of these signs. These signs that uh, people in in the Jewish community understood as coming into the end of the age, some of these natural disasters, uh, some of the miraculous events, nations warring against. He actually says, You know what? This is not the sign that you should be waiting for. Don't be deceived. And that's how he begins his teaching. And then he goes into revealing the signs of the end of the age, but he blurs the line between prophecy of the future destruction of the temple along with the references of the second coming. And so it is is quite difficult to read it and say, okay, well, this this applies to the temple and and this applies uh, to the second coming of Christ because there's a little bit of a blur there. It's difficult to completely comprehend. Now, as Jesus predicted, uh, Jerusalem and the temple in fact, did fall. There was a siege of Jerusalem in the year 70. And that very prophecy, not one stone would remain upon another, is true. If, if you visited the Holy Land, I have not myself, but I've seen, seen pictures of this. And there are the temple ruins. There's, there's stones all over the place. And history confirms that this siege was a terrible, terrible event. It lasted about four years, the Roman conquest of, of Jerusalem. And some of the atrocities there are, are just difficult to fathom how that could have happened. And when you look at at some of the things that Jesus says uh, about the coming of this time, it definitely falls into accordance of what he would say. And because of that, and because of, of verse 34 that talks about that this generation will not pass away, every generation since the generation of the disciples has been able to say, the return of Christ can happen now. Because all these signs that Jesus talked about happening to that generation have been fulfilled when Jerusalem was taken down. And so justifiably, they've been able to say, "Here's the signs, this has been fulfilled. Jesus could legitimately come back at any time." And once we get to verse 36, uh, Jesus seems to narrow his focus a little bit specifically to the second coming. And this is where we're going to pick up on the text. This is Matthew 24 uh, verse 36. And he tells them. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, the obvious question when we're dealing with this passage of kind of weaving in and out of of different prophecies is, well, what day or hour is Jesus talking about? Is he talking about the fall of the temple in Jerusalem or is he talking about the coming back of the Messiah? And thankfully, the very next verse answers it. this is verse 37. He continues and says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the son of man. And the son of man is a phrase that Jesus uses to refer to himself. So what he is saying essentially is no one knows when I, the Messiah, the son of man, the son of God is going to return. The angels don't know. The only one who knows is the father. Father God is the only one who knows when this time will happen. Now, this poses a bit of a difficulty probably to many of us because we might be asking ourselves, wait a second, if Jesus is the son of God, If he's completely divine, how can he not know this? Isn't God completely knowledgeable? Shouldn't he know the date? And it's a a great question. Some people really struggle with this. But we have to remember that Jesus willingly gave himself to human qualities. And part of that was limiting his divine nature. And part of the reason that that Jesus came to take on the full embodiment of humanity was so he could relate to us, so that he could understand what human life is fully like. And so Jesus in his human form did not know the time or the hour, just like you and I don't know, just like the disciples don't know because he willingly emptied himself of that ability to know that knowledge. And so what Jesus says here is that he and every single person does not know the day or the time of the second coming. Now, this is a pretty straight answer. Um, the, the disciples asked for a sign, and, and then Jesus actually tells them when it's going to happen, and the answer is, I don't know. The answer is, no one knows, actually. It may not be the answer that they were hoping for. may not be the answer that we're hoping for today, but it is the honest answer. It's the truth of the scripture that no one knows the time of the second coming. Now, this, this presents us with two quick applications, just this knowledge. And it comes right out of the scriptures, but this is very difficult for a lot of people to grasp. Uh, the first is, whenever you hear a doomsday report, don't believe it. I may, it may sound silly, but, I mean, seriously, whenever you hear someone, a ministry group, a prophet, whether or not they're connected with with the beliefs of the scriptures, whenever you hear say someone, on this date, the end of the world is going to happen, don't believe it. Because Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour. Simply don't believe it. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, my wife Melissa and I were vacationing this past week, and we stayed at a timeshare. She found this, this great deal online. I didn't even know it was a timeshare until we got there. So we get there and we're checking in, and uh, then we go to... Uh, to, to the person there behind the desk, and they said, well, would you like to uh, to receive a couple of gifts while you're here? Oh, sure, you know, of course, who doesn't want a couple of gifts? Uh, in exchange for coming to one of our uh, sales promotional for the timeshare. Who Who's done this? Okay, I should probably ask who hasn't done it. That might be a, 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 a better question. I was surprised. My wife was like, oh, sure. And, and uh, they, they had told us it's about 90 minutes to an hour and a half. So we kind of weighed, okay, well, this much time uh, of our vacation versus getting this sort of gift. Okay, sure, we'll go. Of course, it took us three hours, right? So we're, we're there... And it, it's the normal drill, and I'm analyzing this guy's sales tactics, and he was very good. You know, he wanted me to agree, 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 and I refused, refused, refused. And so, you know, we had a little bit of a battle going on. And then as they, they try to cater this to you as an individual, right? They want to know your profession, your vacation habits, your spending money, all this, so they can make sure that this fits what you really want. That helps their, their sales strategy. So in the course of our conversation, about halfway through, he asked what my profession was, which, you know, is... As a pastor, it's, it's something that usually gets a, an interesting reaction. So I told them, I'm a pastor. And it was met with the typical shock. You know, really? Yep, yeah, you know, there's still some of us out there. <laughs> so I, I got the initial shock. And then generally what happens from there in, in our in our age of tolerance is a lot of affirmation. That's great. Oh, that's good that you're doing that. Yeah, a lot of people did And And then the next thing that almost always follows is the justification of why that individual chooses not to go to church. That's, that's the third thing. It's shock. It's then kind of, that's great, way to help out you know, those people who need it. And, and then it's the, the third thing is, well, you know, it's, it's not really, I used to go and I believe it. And, you know, and, you know fine. And I just always kind of sit there and, and smile. So, so, th- so this, is, uh, this is how it came about. But then I was asked a question. That I've never been asked before. And it's always interesting when people find out you're a pastor. Generally they've got a question they want to ask you. Right? I've got a whole bunch of different questions I've been asked over the years. I was asked a question that I've never been asked before. And a week from today I'm quite sure I will never be asked again. And his question was this. Do you think the world's going to end on May 21st? And I'd actually, I'd never even heard that date as one of those dates being when the the world would end. This was news to me. But if, do you think the world's gonna end on May 21st, 2011? That's Saturday, that's this upcoming Saturday. And I was shocked, like this guy's very interested in when the world is going to end. So yesterday I, I did a Google search on it and of course there's, there's stuff all over about May 21st and it generally involves a lot of mathematical equations. It, 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 it involves some of the natural disasters in our world which are some of these signs. And then it almost always involves uh, some sort of prophetic, biblical twisting of some sort. And you mix it around and out spills date. And this one happens to be May 21st. And my initial response to, to this, this gentleman was, well, it's interesting. I'm actually preaching on this topic this upcoming Sunday. Um, Jesus doesn't even know the date. So I don't think that it's going to be May 21st. In fact, I think it's pretty appropriate to say that if you ever hear anyone suggest any sort of date, it's not going to be that date because no one knows the hour or the day. Another application that comes from this uh, simple fact that no one knows the day or the hour is what we should do. Because if we don't know the day, we're in a waiting period. Big news. This is what we've been talking about this whole morning. We're in a period of waiting So how should we wait? What should we do about it? I mean, we're forced to wait for his return. We don't know if it's going to happen four weeks from now. It could be 38 years from now. I mean, our great, 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 great ancestors could be in the exact same boat that we are right now, just saying, we don't know when he's going to return. We're in this waiting period. The question is, how now shall we live? How is waiting going to impact how we choose to live? And Jesus tells us in this passage here in in verses 36 to 41, that the coming of his return will surprise us. He compares it to the days of Noah, where where the people uh, who would have seen Noah constructing this ark were surprised. They went on their life. They were merry. They were eating. They were drinking. They went about their life. And when the floodwaters carried them away, they were shocked. They were surprised. And Jesus says, this is what the second coming is going to be like. But he gives us direct instructions for how we can be ready. Uh, This is verse 42. Therefore, keeping in mind all these things, therefore keep watch because you do not know what day your Lord will come. We're told to keep watch because we don't know when he will return, because we can't know when he will return. We're told that we must keep watch. It's not a suggestion. This isn't good advice by Jesus. This is a command. These are some of the last words he leaves his disciples with. And he says, keep watch. Be ready. And then he launches into a very short parable. I I haven't found out if this is the shortest parable in the Bible, but it's one verse. So I'm guessing it's got to be one of the shortest uh, parables in the Bible. And he compares it to ownership of a home and a thief coming in In the middle of the night. This is uh, verse 43. He compares it this way. Understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming. He would have kept watch. And would have not let his house be broken into. This is a great illustration. If someone came up to me later today and said. Keith. Monday morning. Sunday night. 2.38 in the morning. Your house is going to be broken into. And if I took that as truth. I would do something about it. Now, I don't know what I would do. Uh, my guess is that I'd probably set the alarm and I'd wake up five, ten minutes before. I'd turn on a couple of lights, maybe some music. Maybe I'd just go out on the front porch, you know, pretend like I was smoking or something like that. I, I, don't, I don't know what I would do. Um, but I would, I would do something. You know, maybe I would decide, you know what, I'm really freaked out about this. I don't care too much about the possessions in my home and my house. I'm just going to load up my wife and my son... We're gonna we're gonna go somewhere. Maybe we'll go to another timeshare. Let's just you know be gone overnight, and let's get, let's. Maybe I'd call the cops. I, I don't know, but I guarantee you this. I would do something. I wouldn't just stay there and let my house be robbed and let harm come to my family. I would do something. And this is the point that Jesus makes here. He says, "Keep watch. If you know what the, if you knew what the time was, you would do something about it. So keep watch. This is really the same concept." Of the Back to the Future movies. <laughs> it really is, right? You know what's going to happen? So you go back in time and you change it. Something bad happened in the past. And so you, that's the, the knowledge, the, the future knowledge that you have is what prepares you. So you go back into time and you settle that because you already know what to anticipate. It's history. And you change that and you fix it and then you move forward again. This is the same concept of the Thief of the Knife parable. You can be prepared by knowing when it happens. And so then you change how you live in order to anticipate what will happen. And this is what we're told in, in verse 44. This is the concluding word. He says, So you must be ready, because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. This is the point of the parable. This is the, this is the, the direct question that Jesus has now answered. We're gonna see in just a minute a series of other parables that reinforce this very point and the report the, the this is the, the whole essential point of the message. You must be ready. That's it. You must be ready. You need to be ready, I need to be ready, collectively as a church we must be ready. That's it. When you hear doomsday reports, uh when when anything comes about this, the principle that you should remember that should be ingrained in your mind is I must be ready. Jesus didn't tell us the time. Jesus didn't tell when it was going to happen. Jesus told us some things on how to be prepared, which we're going to see in just a minute. But Jesus' overall point was you must be ready. And this is just the first parable that Jesus used to emphasize his point. If you're looking for a a great way to apply today's message and you're interested on his teaching and and you're a bit of a studier or perhaps you haven't gotten into uh, biblical devotions regularly, here's, here's a great way to put this into practice these five parables study them this week read them this afternoon choose one for for every day and and, in the weekday but study these parables and find out how we can be prepared for his coming i'm just gonna do a quick summary of each one because while each one reinforces this very point that you must be ready there's several different nuances that says how we can be ready how we can compare this to everyday life and how we can be assured that we're ready for his return. The first one is the one that we just talked about. It's the parable of the nocturnal thief. The thief that comes in the middle of the night to rob the home. And the point is that watchfulness produces change. If we know that something's going to happen, we usually make sure that we're prepared. We change something to make sure that we're ready. Uh, the, The second parable finishes out chapter 24. It's the parable of the disorderly servants. The concept there is that the master is away. The master has been delayed. Just as right now, Jesus is delayed in coming back. And the concept is, is that while the master is away, the servants, they get into a bit of mischief. They're lazy. They have some bad behavior. And the principle that we see there in the story is that delay triggers bad behavior. When you're in an extended long waiting period, generally that breeds some sort of bad behavior. We get into chapter 5 now. There's three more parables in chapter 25. Uh, the first one is the parable of the ten virgins. I was hoping to spend more time on this, but time didn't allow it. This is, this is a uh, very, very interesting story. There's ten virgins, and, and back in, in that day when you had the wedding feast, these were kind of the attendants to the bride. And five of them are listed as being wise. Five are listed as being foolish. And the wise and foolish are called that because they have their lamp of oil and you fill it up with oil and the lamp keeps burning and they're waiting for the bridegroom to come and the importance of this is that it wasn't just like a nice reception that you didn't have to pay for That you're like hey sweet i can go and put on a tie or a dress and i get this this free meal no this was a huge feast this was like a week-long feast you did not want to miss out on it and what happens in this story is we see that the bridegroom comes at a time that's not expected and the foolish virgins with with they don't have enough oil and so they ask the wise ones, can I have some of your oil? And they said, well, no, we have to make sure we have enough for ourselves so, that, so we can be invited in. And so they're advised maybe to, to go buy some. And while, while they go and buy some, it, it, the door's closed. And there's lots of applications there. But one of them is that preparation is non-transferable. We can prepare ourselves. We can help others prepare while you know out of our own power as much as we can do But the reality is is that you and I are accountable just for ourselves not for other people And so preparation is something that each individual has to do on their own There's the parable of the talents the next one uh, verses 14 to 30 This is a lengthy one has a lot of application with stewardship It's very helpful and, and the idea that we have here is first of all that each and every one of us is gifted You may have a number of gifts. You may have a smaller amount of gifts. It doesn't really matter because the point of the principle is is you're going to be held accountable for what you've been entrusted with. You're going to be held accountable for what you've been entrusted with. And then finally, there's the parable of the sheep and the goats that finishes out chapter 25. And the understanding that we have here is that judgment is coming. Every individual will, in fact, be judged when Christ returns, and actions matter. How we live matters. We will be judged according to our faith, but we will also be judged according to our actions that demonstrates that faith. And each of these five principles, it reinforces the teaching of Jesus and the point of today's message, which is this. You must be ready. You must be ready. And readiness, of course, implies preparation. The two of them are are kind of used interchangeably in Jesus' teaching here. If you want to be ready, you better get prepared. And if by preparing ourselves, we make ourselves ready. They kind of go hand in glove. And these five parables provide us with some very clear ways to ready ourselves. I'll list just a couple of them. And as you study them this week, hopefully these will be reinforced. Readiness involves a wise use of our resources. That's one way we can be ready for the Lord's return. Readiness is about pursuing holiness. Readiness includes serving those in need. Readiness is about obedience to the master even as his return is delayed. And I think it boils down to a simple application, which is really just the the obvious response to Jesus' point. If the point is, uh, uh, we must be ready, then the question that we can ask ourselves is, am I ready? I think it's one of the most important questions that as followers of Christ we can ask ourselves. Am I ready? If the thief were to come tonight, if Christ were returned tomorrow, If Christ were to return this upcoming Saturday, am I ready? If the Master came, would I be able to give a good account of what I've been entrusted with and how I have chosen to live my life? In many ways, I think that that asking ourselves this question about being ready for Christ's return, I think this has become a bit of a lost discipline in the church. I think that uh, it's... Because of our society right now and, and because of the, the many things that are going on, it's one of those questions that's seen a, as a bit, a bit intrusive into our lives. It's perceived as a bit condescending, maybe a bit arrogant to ask ourselves or to ask someone else, you know, are you ready for the judgment day? If Christ is coming tomorrow, would you be ready? We might think that it's old-fashioned. Maybe it's a bit too intolerant. But as I read these two chapters... And as I think about all the other references in the New Testament that talks about the day of the Lord's return, I can't help but think that what that author is writing about and communicating is, are you ready? Are you ready? I grew up in a church that sang about Christ's return. And I want to read the lyrics to you. I contemplated uh, having our band Learn it this week and and sing it, hopefully for us. And then I thought to myself, they probably won't know it. And probably most of us don't know this song. If you have never heard this song, or maybe you haven't heard it for 15 years, like I haven't sung it in a church in 15 years, it might be a little bit shocking to you because of the lyrics. The song is called, There's a Great Day Coming. And it was written in 1886 by a gentleman named Will Thompson. And this is how it goes. Don't worry, I won't sing it to you. There's a great day coming. A great day coming. There's a great day coming by and by. When the saints and the sinners shall be parted right and left. Are you ready for that day to come? And then it goes into the chorus, which you see up on the screen. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for the judgment day? Are you ready? Are you ready for the judgment day? Two more verses. There's a bright day coming, a bright day coming. There's a bright day coming by and by. But its brightness shall only come to them that love the Lord. Are you ready for that day to come? And lastly, there's a sad day coming, a sad day coming. There's a sad day coming by and by. When the sinner shall hear his doom, depart, I know you not. Are you ready for that day to come? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for the judgment day? Are you ready? Are you ready? For the judgment day. Let's pray. Lord God, the lyrics of this song are direct. And perhaps abrasive to many of us. But as we read your gospel As we look at what your son Jesus said to his disciples, I can't help but think, Lord, that they're full of truth. There will be a day, Lord, when you return. We don't know the day or the hour, but Lord, my prayer is that we will be ready. Lord, I ask that your spirit would convict us as necessary, that it would your spirit would instruct us on how we can live to be prepared so that each and every day we can say with a confidence that comes through your grace, I'm ready. I'm ready to meet my Lord. I'm ready to dwell with him in eternity forever. I am ready for that day to come. Lord, I I pray that this message, that our readiness would change how we live, that it would change how we interact with people. That it would change uh, how we minister to others and how we spread your gospel. That it would change how we view our resources so, so that we would manage them more in accordance with your will for our lives. Lord, I pray that we would be compelled to live lives of holiness. God, I pray that we would be ambitious as we wait for your return. We pray these things in your name, Lord. Amen. If you'd like to... follow up with Pastor Brad or myself or someone for the prayer team. Uh, There'll be a few of us over there by the curtain on your left. And we'd love to pray with you. We'd love to process this information with you and, and dig deeper about what it means to be prepared and ready for the Lord's return. And as we go from this place, may we all be ready for the Lord's return. And may our preparation fill us with greater ambition to live and to wait with great expectation. Amen.